lecture is taken from the graduate course Introduction to Charitable Planning at Texas Tech University. To download the PowerPoint slides for this lecture, or to take the online quiz for this lecture, or to find out more about the Graduate Certificate in Charitable Financial Planning at Texas Tech University, go to EncourageGenerosity.com. Okay, welcome to class. Tonight we're going to be talking about the topic of retirement assets. In particular, we're going to be looking at donating retirement assets. And it turns out there are some other ways that we can use retirement assets in a way that interacts with uh, charitable planning. Uh, mostly we'll be looking at just giving them away, but there are some other ways that they interact as well. So let's talk about donating retirement assets and uh, the uh, rules and regulations related to that. The first question is, why are we taking the time uh, to uh, look at all of these uh, sometimes very difficult rules when it comes to retirement assets. In other words, why is this such a big deal? Why do we care about it either as planners or as fundraisers? Uh, why should we take the time to uh, keep up with this sort of knowledge? Well, and the answer is, well, it's fairly straightforward. Uh, it's a big deal because that's where the money is. If you take a look at uh, various studies, they're going to show that uh, you know 36% of all household financial assets are held as retirement assets. Now, this is a particularly big deal when you consider that the rest of assets oftentimes are not in a liquid form. So if you take a look at, for example, the, uh, uh, the home is going to be another major block of where people uh, own assets. Uh, different studies on housing assets indicate that um, uh, owned homes uh, are somewhere around 40% of all wealth is in, uh, is in own, owned homes. Uh, and in some studies, if you include uh, owned rental homes, uh, that can uh, get you up all, almost all the way to 50%, depending on which year you're looking at. So the point is, not only are uh, retirement assets a big chunk of total wealth, but when you compare uh, them to other sources of wealth. Oftentimes those other sources of wealth are not liquid and so may not be good candidates for an immediate charitable gift. So if you're taking a look at cash assets, at securities, at cash equivalents, it turns out that the bulk of those are going to be held in retirement accounts. And so we really need to know how to work with these, whether we're working as fundraisers or working as uh, financial advisors, you've got to know how to deal with these kind of assets. And it turns out some of the rules in dealing with these kinds of assets uh, can be relatively tricky. All right, we're going to look at two different parts uh, of dealing with retirement assets. The first part is dealing with giving those retirement assets away during life. And then later we'll look at the second part, which deals with giving those assets away uh, at death. So let's first take a look at giving the assets away during life. If we take a look at the stages of a retirement account during the life of the owner, we can break that into three different stages. And those three different stages are early distribution, that is when the owner is less than age 59 and a half. We can then look at regular distribution, which is when the owner is somewhere between 59 and a half to 79 to 70 and a half. And then finally we enter the last stage of the retirement account while the owner is alive. And that is the required minimum distribution stage after age 70 and a half. 
and the idea of the uh, various stages reflects the different rules on taking money out. Early distribution, not going to want to take money out, the rules are against that. Regular distribution, the rules are saying, yeah, sure, you can take it out if you want to. And then finally, required minimum distribution basically says, look, you've gotten old enough, it's time for you to start taking this out and using it, uh, and so you have to start taking money out now. So those are the three different life stages of a retirement account. And because the rules are different with each life stage, it is important to uh, recognize which life stage we're in because that can change what the options are for giving out of a retirement account. So let's first look at giving before 59 and a half. Now there's a significant problem with giving before 59 and a half and that is in general for most withdrawals before age 59 and a half from a standard IRA you're going to have a penalty. Now, that is a 10% penalty on top of any taxes that you'll have to pay for pulling that money out. And so that penalty makes these assets that are generally not good candidates to take out. They're not good candidates to take out for charitable giving or uh, for other purposes for that matter uh, if there are other assets that can be used. Uh, now this doesn't apply if this happens to be a Roth IRA. There uh, typically are no penalties for that. But in your traditional type of accounts, your traditional IRA, for example, there is going to be a penalty if you pull money out before age 59 and a half. Now there are various exceptions to that, reasons you could pull out money for certain life circumstances or certain purposes, and uh, Congress sometimes changes those from year to year. But uh, at this point, we've not seen any legislation that suggests that you can pull money out for the purpose of making a charitable gift and avoid the penalty when you're in this early uh, stage of the uh, retirement account. So, giving before age 59 and a half, uh, what, would that, uh, what would that look like? Well, let's say you pulled $10,000 out of your IRA. What's going to happen? Well, the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to have $10,000 of income because in a traditional IRA and most other retirement accounts, when you put money in, you're putting money in that you have not paid taxes on. The idea is I'm putting it in now, I'm not paying taxes on it today, and I will simply pay taxes on it when I pull it out later. Presumably that's pulling it out during retirement. So in this case, when you pull that $10,000 out of the IRA, the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to have $10,000 of income that you have to pay taxes on. The second thing that's going to happen is you're going to have a 10% penalty. So 10% of that $10,000 we pulled out, that's a $1,000 penalty on top of the taxes. Now you can then turn around and give $10,000 to the charity and receive a $10,000 deduction. Now there is a little bit of an offset here because you have $10,000 of income, but you have a $10,000 deduction. Those two pieces could offset. Now I say could because it depends upon the individual taxpayer. We can't automatically say, oh, those will offset, uh, no questions asked. The reason we can't do that is because, well, let's say number one uh, is the taxpayer um, itemizing. If they're not itemizing, uh, then they may not uh, be able to use the full amount of that, uh, of that contribution uh, because they may have to, because they have to give up the standard deduction in order to itemize. 
uh, that cost them money to give up the standard deduction, and so they're not going to get their full $10,000. Also, we have to make sure they're not over any income limits. Uh, If you recall from some time ago, you can't give, uh, you can't deduct charitable gifts beyond a certain percentage of your income. So we've got to make sure those are no problems. And there can be some other, uh, other reasons that mess us up, even if we've got a donor who is under the income giving limits and a donor who is itemizing. Those two things get us most of the way, but there can still be some problems because depending upon the income level of the donor, it may be that this additional income that comes to the donor from pulling money out of the IRA is income that's going to push them into a higher income level that may disqualify them from taking certain other kinds of deductions. Uh, so there's a whole range of these. Uh, any, uh, it can be anywhere from the amount that you can put into an IRA into, uh, into what things are deductible or how much of them are deductible. Uh, and as you get up into the higher income levels, uh, certain items become less deductible or become not, not deductible at all. So we won't go into the uh, 50 different ways that uh, being bumped up into a higher income bracket could cost you in terms of other uh, lost deductions, but but just keep in mind that it is possible that these two things don't completely offset. Okay, and this is caused by what sometimes we refer to as tax friction. The idea that okay, we've got the income and we've got the deduction to match it, but because our income is higher, it costs us in some other unrelated area. So those two things could possibly offset, but. What happens is, well, what happens is your penalty doesn't offset. So even in a perfect world where your income that comes out of the IRA 100% is offset by the deduction to the charitable organization, perfect world scenario, guess what? You're still left with a $1,000 penalty. So this is not uh, generally the idea we're looking for. Um, It's uh, going to be a disfavored asset uh, for making charitable gifts. Okay, so that's giving before age 59 and a half. What's next? Let's take a look at the middle range. That is giving between age 59 and a half and age 70 and a half. Now, the big advantage to giving after age 59 and a half is that the withdrawals don't create any penalty. So that 10% penalty, in our example, it was $1,000, that penalty goes away. It disappears. So the thing that was really messing up this transaction for us uh, all of a sudden disappears and we have a much more pleasant transaction uh, from a tax perspective because we get, we've gotten rid of that penalty. So if you're dealing with a prospective donor who is at least age 59 and a half, then you have perhaps a more reasonable source of uh, assets from which to uh, make gifts. If the donor is already itemizing and stays under any relevant income limitations, there are uh, many examples, many circumstances, where the income can be completely offset by the deduction. And so this is a, uh, a more reasonable, a, a more feasible approach. Now, granted, this is not going to give you the massive tax advantages that you might see if you had, say, for example, appreciated property that you were going to sell and pay taxes on, and now we just give that property directly to the charity and we avoid those taxes. So it's not a, it's not a tax boon. You know, it's not just a, an exciting, wonderful uh, tax strategy, but it is at least not offensive. You know, it's at least not the uh, obnoxious 
uh, tax result that we saw with under age 59 and a half where we're having to pay that, that big penalty. So in this case, uh, we can have a circumstance where uh, the uh, income is completely offset by the deduction. So essentially, we're able to move money, in some cases, from the IRA to the charity and have no negative tax consequences. Now you say, well, wait a second, I'm giving it to charity. Shouldn't I be getting some bonus? Well, the idea here is that this is money you've never paid income taxes on, right? So it's sort of like the idea that Instead of having to pay income taxes on it, we're now relieving you of that burden because you're shifting it over to charity. So it is possible to do this, although, again, uh, it has to be the right circumstances, the right scenario, uh, where you've got somebody who's already itemizing, who's under the gift income limitations, and where we don't see significant problems with the taxpayer being disqualified from other uh, deductions that they had been taking uh, during the during the same period of um, the, the other deductions that could be messed up by their now higher uh, reported level of income. Now, finally, let's look at the last stage of giving from an IRA uh, during life, and that is giving after age seventy and a half. Now, the only thing that changes here uh, is that after you reach age seventy and a half, uh, you're you're essentially forced to start taking money out of the IRA. Uh, you have to take the required minimum distribution every year, and that's essentially the account balance divided by the remaining life expectancy of the person. And you really do have to do this. In fact, if you forget about it, if you don't get around to doing it, uh, if you choose not to do it, the penalty for it is pretty massive. It's a 50% penalty uh, on what you should have taken out. So if you don't take the amount out, the IRS is just going to take 50% of that amount uh, right, up, right off the top. So uh, essentially this is a forced uh, uh, distribution. So why does this become a big deal? Well, it becomes a big deal because all of the potential tax disadvantages of taking money out of the IRA, you know, you have a higher income, you might be disqualified from some other uh, deductions, the tax friction, all those sort of negatives, those are going to happen anyway. Whether we do a transaction or don't do a transaction, whether we make a gift or don't make a gift, those things are going to happen. Uh, no way to get out of it, at least up to the level of the required minimum distribution. So that's a person who has to be taking the money out anyway. Well, what if you have somebody who says, look, I don't really need this money. I'm being forced to take it out, but I don't really need to use it for uh, maintaining my lifestyle. That's the kind of person that all of a sudden makes an excellent candidate for a charitable gift. This is a person that, you know, as a fundraiser, you're going to want to talk to. A person who has this excess income, they're being forced to take it out, uh, and they're being forced essentially to pay taxes on it uh, because this is taxable income. So what can we do to help out that person who's being forced to take the income out and being forced to pay taxes on it? Next stage is we can suggest, well, you know, you could take that income that you don't need, give it to charity, get a deduction that will offset, up to 100% offset, the uh, income that you're going to have to report on your taxes. So this is the basic idea that we've got people being forced to take these uh, distributions, and if they have charitable intent, it's a good way to bring up the topic of uh, giving to the charity. The income is not needed. Charitable gift deduction can offset the income uh, up to 100%. Uh, 
um, in particular if the person's already itemizing and if there's no income giving limitations that have been exceeded. Now this is the standard approach. In some years, Congress has allowed us to do a shortcut version of this that in some cases can be more tax efficient. And that is called a Qualified Charitable Distribution, or QCD. Uh, QCD, uh, in the times that it's been allowed in the past, has been uh, limited to giving over age 70 and a half. Uh, so we're not talking about uh, allowing this for somebody that's under 59 and a half, for example. But if you're already being forced to make these required minimum distributions uh, and you're already at that, at that age, in some years, Congress has allowed these qualified charitable distributions. And what this does is instead of having a distribution that we take out of the IRA, that we now have to declare as income, uh, then giving it to the charity, getting a deduction for the same amount, and then taking that, uh, that deduction and hoping that it offsets, which means hopefully we're already itemizing, hopefully we haven't passed the income giving limitations, hopefully we don't have too much tax friction where our increased level of income is disqualifying us from some other kinds of deductions or benefits. This eliminates all of that uh, all of that uh, hassle, all of that risk. Uh, we eliminate the middleman, uh, that is the owner uh, does not have any income to declare and does not have any deduction to declare. Uh, instead, uh, the owner is simply permitted to shift funds uh, from his or her IRA directly to the charity. In fact, the check does not come to the owner. The check is written uh, directly from uh, the uh, IRA uh, to the charitable organization. Uh, it's a direct transfer and there are uh, essentially no uh, negative uh, or uh, no negative tax implications from this. It just reduces the account. We don't recognize the income. We don't recognize the deduction. Now in the past, when Congress has, uh, has permitted these qualified charitable distributions, uh, the, uh, uh, there have been limitations. Uh, so common limitations uh, from past years where it has been allowed is um, $100,000 per person maximum. Uh, participant has to be 70 and a half or older. We've already talked about that. Uh, and it's also been limited to just IRAs. Uh, so no 401ks. 403Bs, for example, with nonprofit organizations, SEP, SIMPLES, pension or profit sharing plans. However, if you think about this, um, you can do it from an IRA or an IRA rollover. So if you have a 401K and you want to do this, uh, or 403B and you want to do this, well, you can simply convert your account as long as it fits for other reasons uh, into an IRA rollover, and uh, then you can, you can do it out of the IRA rollover. Uh, what are some other regulations or restrictions with the uh, qualified charitable distribution? Uh, in the past, uh, the uh, limitations have been essentially the IRS wants you to do this with a public charity. So they're not going to allow a qualified charitable distribution if you're giving it to your own private foundation or, or any private non-operating foundation for that matter. Uh, you can't put it into your donor-advised fund and you know, let it sit there and then maybe give it away someday later. 
you, you're not going to be able to use it to buy a charitable gift annuity. You're not going to be able to put it into a charitable trust like a charitable remainder trust where you're getting some income back or a charitable lead trust where you're going to get some remainder interest back. None of that. We're looking at just a simple transfer uh, largely to a public charity from IRA to public charity. Uh, now, the, um, uh, this law has been uh, in existence uh, for a number of years. Uh, oftentimes what Congress has done recently is sort of uh, messed around, not gotten much done, and then towards the end of the year they will pass a law that says you can do this and they'll even make it retroactive. So uh, these kinds of transactions were allowed um, if, uh, if they had occurred uh, previously in the year. Right now we're still waiting. You know, we don't know for, uh, for this year whether Congress in 2010 is going to uh, pass this again retroactively, but we're also waiting on a whole uh, huge amount of uh, tax law uh, that we really don't know what the answer is going to be, and this is just one small part of that. Um, some of the commentators I've listened to have said, oh, it's a done deal, it's going to happen, it's going to be retroactive, we'll be able to do this, um, but we're getting pretty late in the game. And so we'll see what happens. So this is not, at this particular instant in time, qualified charitable distributions is not the law. Um, but it has been used very frequently. It may very well retroactively become the law for 2010. Uh, but uh, so it's something to be familiar with because uh, many people suggest that we'll continue to see this um, in, in, in different years. And then finally, we have the uh, different kind of IRA or retirement account, which is the Roth IRA. And here, uh, we actually don't worry about the negative tax implications because essentially there aren't any. Uh, distributions from Roth IRAs, with a few exceptions, are, are not going to be taxed. And so because taking that $10,000 out of the Roth IRA uh, and giving it to a charity, it doesn't generate any income. And since it doesn't generate any income, we don't have any negative tax consequences, other than, of course, the fact that you've taken it out of the Roth IRA, so it can't continue to grow tax-free. You're giving it away. But um, you essentially, by taking it out of the Roth and giving it to a charity, you're creating a deduction with no offsetting income. So creating a deduction with no offsetting income uh, might be a particularly attractive thing to accomplish uh, if, you know, let's say there's some uh, unexpected or unusual amount of income that a donor gets in a particular year and they're looking to offset it. Say a donor gets a big bonus at work, um, you know, big commission or big bonus, uh, very unusual amount. They're all of a sudden bumped up into the maximum tax bracket. They want to take advantage of that. Well, one thing they can do is, for example, pull a chunk of money out of the Roth, make a, a gift, and let's say here, you know, they make a gift uh, to, a, um, uh, to a donor advised fund. So maybe they're saying, well, look, over the next five years, I'm going to give probably this amount of money to charity. So I'll just take it out of the Roth today, shift it over into my donor advised fund, take the big deduction today, and then over the next five years, I'll gradually um, uh, push that out of the donor advised fund to the charities that I want to benefit. So this is a way where uh, we can use this uh, to, uh, to generate uh, deductions uh, if we have some outside source of unexpected income. If we've got the Roth IRA, we've always got something there that we can uh, donate 
and make a uh, and create an, an offsetting uh, deduction. But of course, Roth IRAs aren't subject to all the uh, uh, negative uh, tax consequences we looked at with regular retirement uh, plans because, well, because they're Roth IRAs, because they don't have any, uh, because they're not taxable when you uh, take them out. They've already, you've already paid taxes on them. Okay, so that was part one. Now, before we get into part two, uh, let me kind of give you the general framework. From a gift planning perspective, the general rule of thumb when it comes to retirement plan assets is this. Tax consequences of giving during life from a retirement plan are meh, you know, not great, you can do it so they're not terrible, it's, it's okay. It's not, nothing to write home about. Okay? Now, we still care about it because that's where all the money is, right? So it was, but it's not like you're going to be pulling down some, some amazing tax advantage from giving during life out of your IRA or other retirement plan. On the other hand, giving at death or giving after death from a retirement plan can have massive tax advantages. This is one of the simple slam dunk areas of charitable planning, where by making relatively straightforward, relatively simple changes in how, uh, in which assets wind up going to charity, you can have really major uh, tax advantages. So, so this is really the area from an advisor's perspective where we're going to be able to uh, confer dramatic advantages onto our clients is in this part two, the, uh, the giving after death uh, category. All right, so what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is this. Retirement plan assets that wind up going to, wind up being inherited by non-charitable beneficiaries, they are reduced by both estate tax and income tax. That's what makes these assets different. That's what makes them particularly uh, tax heavy. These are assets, let's think about it in the form of a traditional IRA. These are assets that income taxes have never been paid on. No income taxes when they first went in, no income taxes when they appreciated over the years, no income taxes whatsoever. So guess what? Those income taxes still need to be paid. And what we call that in an estate is we call that income uh, in respect of a decedent or IRD. So if you ever hear the term IRD, that is money that still needs to have the income taxes paid on it uh, in an estate. Uh, and so this can create a lot of problems. Um, let's take a look at, at an example here. And this is an example just to show you how just a little bit of knowledge that we're going to be talking about tonight, just a little bit of knowledge can confer a, a massive tax benefit on your clients. So let's take this scenario. Uh, let's say we've got a donor who's at top tax rates. Uh, and of course those can vary depending on what Congress does, but we'll just use ballpark percentages. This donor has, among other assets, donor has a $1 million IRA and a $1 million house, and the donor wants to leave one of these to her child and one of these to a charity. Okay? 
Could it possibly make that big of a difference? Which gets what? Well, it turns out it does. Let's look at the numbers. First, let's take a look at the left-hand side. The left-hand side is if we give the IRA to the child, uh, noted as a beneficiary designation, and we give the house to the charity. Uh, either we're in a state that allows us uh, to use the beneficiary deed or, or we put it in the will. And uh, what are the tax consequences of that? Well, first we have the house going to charity. Uh, well, you know, there's no estate taxes there because charity doesn't pay estate taxes. Um, don't have to worry about income taxes. This is not IRD or income with respect to a decedent. Uh, but look at what happens to the IRA. We start out with this million-dollar IRA. What's the first thing we have to do? Well, we've got to pay estate taxes on it. So we've got that uh, chunk, $550,000 chunk, uh, being taken out. This is assuming a top uh, tax rate of 55%. As I mentioned before, of course, there is a range in which that tax rate uh, would be 60%, um, but we'll just use 55% because it's not really the estate taxes uh, that's the difference here. It's the, uh, it's the income taxes, the IRD. Uh, and so now we're left with 450000 But because this is an IRA, because this is an IRA, those income taxes have never been paid, and so they're going to have to be paid. And that also winds up being taken out of the, uh, of the uh, uh, child's share. So if we've got a circumstance with the top uh, income tax rate uh, for the person who's receiving them, uh, then we've, we take another 40% away. So the charity winds up with a million, but the child only winds up with $270,000. They both got assets of equal value. Charity gets a million, child only gets 270000 now let's flip that. We flip that and this time we'll say, no, let's change that. Let's put on the beneficiary designation that the IRA is going to go to the charity and let's have the house go to the child. Well, what happens when that IRA goes to the charity? What are the estate taxes? It's a charitable gift. There's no estate taxes for a charitable gift. It's a charitable deduction that eliminates uh, the estate taxes, so no estate taxes. What about the income taxes. Well, it's a charitable organization. It doesn't pay income taxes. So it can take income just in the same way that, you know, we could give it a highly appreciated asset and allow that charity to sell that appreciated asset. Charity doesn't pay any taxes when it sells that appreciated asset. Uh, it's a tax-exempt entity. That's the whole point of being a nonprofit organization. So when we give the million-dollar IRA to the charity, what does it get? It gets a million dollars. So that's a big difference from when we gave it to the child. Now let's take a look at the child. We give the child the million-dollar house, and uh, we still have to pay estate taxes. We're still in the state tax situation, but there are no income taxes associated with that house. So we have 450000 going to the child. Now I want to bring up this example because I want you to just step back from the numbers for a moment and look only at that bottom line. What advanced, sophisticated, charitable planning technique have we used here? Okay, it's not really that advanced. It's not really that sophisticated. We've simply said, well, instead of leaving the house of the charity and IRA to the, uh, to the kid, let's reverse those. Okay, that, that's, that's all we did. And what was the difference in terms of what wound up being transferred to the child? I mean, I mean, it was a massive difference. 
not quite double, but uh, uh, certainly a uh, uh, certainly a, a big difference. Uh, a big difference here, more than fifty percent uh, difference here of what's uh, what's being transferred. So, so this is why I say this is an area where just having a little bit of knowledge, just having a little bit of information, can generate a massive benefit for your client, uh, knowing that, hey, guess what? IRAs, charitable plans, are lousy assets to inherit. They're awful assets to inherit. You know, we're looking at here, 27% in this particular scenario is, is all you get left, uh, all you get uh, left with after the taxes are paid. So knowing that little bit of knowledge, and you say, why don't you give that to the charity? Uh, so instead of 27 cents on the dollar going to the child, you know, 100 cents on the dollar can go to the charity. Especially when, you know, as we've looked at, you could have a, uh, a donor who picks a charity that is, you know, his or her own private foundation. Uh, picks a charity that is a donor advised fund. Uh, that the uh, um, that the uh, child is going to get to participate in the uh, uh, administration and the payout of those uh, funds over time. Uh, so, so this is something where um, uh, you know you, you can still uh, keep a lot of assets that are being managed by the family, uh, and, uh, and and there may be some children, especially if you've got a child who is in reasonably good financial health. Uh, health, and they uh, also have charitable intent. If you if you were to say to them, you know, would you prefer to get twenty seven cents on the dollar, or prefer to manage a private foundation where you get a hundred cents on every dollar? Um, you know, for every dollar you don't take as an inheritance, you get four dollars that you can decide where which charitable entity that it's going to go to. Now, for many. Uh, heirs who are charitably inclined, that seems like a pretty good deal. And so when you're looking at an asset like an IRA here, uh, and here obviously we do the, the no-brainer where we switch as to which organization gets the asset, but when you're looking at these kind of assets, um, you may actually have an heir that would prefer to have it left to a private foundation that the heir controls or a donor advised fund that the heir controls that um, uh, that for you know uh, four bucks for every dollar I give up, um, you know you can very well have a charitably inclined heir that would prefer uh, that that go into a uh, uh, a charitable entity uh, that the heir controls rather than coming directly to the heir. Okay, who should we be uh, picking for retirement plan uh, death beneficiaries? A public charity is fine. Uh, a private found family foundation is fine. Uh, a charitable remainder trust is fine, uh, and I'm including here within public uh, within public charities, uh, donor advised funds, which are uh, subsections of public charities. All of those organizations work well with a retirement plan death beneficiaries. Uh, and then there's the last one here: a charitable remainder trust. Uh, you can, in fact, use a charitable remainder trust as the beneficiary, the death beneficiary of a retirement plan. So we've got a scenario here where you can do a lot of creative things. However, next slide, there are some things you want to avoid. Uh, and, and 
because this, you know, we're not going to get into the minutiae of, of the tax law and how all these things work together, but just to kind of keep in mind, there are certain kinds of entities that you don't want to name. Um, charitable trusts, such as a charitable lead trust, pooled income funds are, are not good uh, entities to, to name. There are, there are potential and, uh, and actual tax advantage, disadvantages from naming those kinds of organizations. Charitable Lead Trust, for example, is not a nonprofit organization as we've talked about before, and so you don't really want to combine those. Um, and, and actually, if possible, it is always better to name the charity on the beneficiary statement of the IRA or other retirement plan. Uh, in other words, uh, you generally want to avoid a situation where on the retirement plan document it lists the, the owner's estate as the beneficiary, and then once it gets into the estate, the estate says, okay, now we're going to pay out money uh, to the charity. You, you, uh, you want to avoid that situation. There are many circumstances in which doing that will cause the estate to have to pay those income taxes. The fact that this asset, this IRA or retirement plan asset, is IRD. It is income with respect of a decedent. And if we shift it to the estate, uh, we start fooling around with it in there, uh, there's a good chance we're going to have to wind up that the estate itself, because the estate is a taxpayer for as long as it exists in administering things, that the estate itself is going to have to pay these taxes, uh, these income taxes. And so all of those tax benefits we were getting from leaving the IRA or the, the qualified plan to the charity, those tax benefits go away. And so that's, that's something that uh, we want to avoid. Uh, in the same vein, uh, and this is all sort of interrelated, uh, you want to avoid specific dollar charitable gifts uh, and instead use percentages. So rather than saying, you know, I've got this, uh, uh, this million dollar IRA, rather than saying uh, I'm going to leave $100,000 of this IRA uh, to the charity, just say I'm going to leave 10%. There are problems uh, potential problems with specific pecuniary bequests for specific dollar amounts going to charity that if we use the uh, retirement plan money, the IRD money, to pay those pecuniary bequests, um, there's, a, there's a good chance we're going to have to wind up paying the income taxes on that qualified plan. So you, you just want to avoid that. And plus, if you're doing it as a beneficiary designation, you know, most... Uh, financial institutions are not going to let you set that up as dollar amounts, although they will generally permit you to set it up as percentages. Um, and there's other reasons not to use dollar amounts. You know, the account value can fluctu fluctuate, and it can wind up doing something you didn't want it to do, and, and, and on and on. But these are just sort of some things to keep in mind. Just, just avoid these things. Um, I don't want to spend all night talking about, you know, the ins and outs of all of them. Uh, in, in most circumstances, there's no reason why you need to do any of these things, and so just, just don't. Here's another thing to keep in mind. Now, I mentioned how much of our wealth is tied up in retirement plans. But when it comes to giving retirement plans at death, there's a lot of them where that simply isn't possible. Simply can't do it. Why is that? Well, because a lot of retirement plans are 
have a benefit only of paying income for the uh, uh, for the uh, person's life or their life and the uh, life of a, of a spouse. And so if you have one of these kinds of plans, well, then there's nothing to plan for. I mean, there's nothing you're going to be able to give that is going to say, um, that's going to be left, uh, left over uh, after the person dies. Um, now, obviously, this is the case if you're talking about, say, a, um, a defined uh, benefit plan that um, a traditional pension uh, that pays for life and maybe a survivor uh, amount to the uh, spouse. Um, but there are also other kinds of plans where this comes into play. It depends upon the individual plan document, but you could have, for example, you could have a, a 403B or even a 401K where uh, it is mandated that, uh, although you put money in and you build it up, where it can be mandated that at the retirement age what you receive is an annuity. Uh, for the remainder of your life or, or your life in a spouse. And so even in an account that you're, you're actually putting dollars into, that you can put more into uh, and make it grow bigger or less into and it doesn't grow, grow as much and you're doing investment choices and all that sort of thing like the typical uh, defined contribution account, there are plans that say the only way you can take money out is through uh, a, uh, an, an annuity. And uh, if those annuities don't come with any term certain, that is, if they disappear the instant you die, well, then there's nothing left. And so for those kinds of plans, even though there may be a, an enormous amount of value in them, that they may be a very substantial asset for, the, for that individual uh, person, there's nothing left to death. And so we can't, we can't plan with, it, with those. Do keep in mind that uh, you may need more than the donor's consent to name the charity as the uh, recipient. Um, the participant's spouse, if there's a spouse, must approve the beneficiary for any kind of ERISA accounts. So, for example, a 401k is an ERISA account. Uh, any of your traditional pension plans, uh, you know, money sharing, uh, money pension plans, uh, profit sharing plans uh, are ERISA accounts. This rule, however, does not apply to non-ERISA accounts. So, for example, a traditional IRA is not covered by ERISA, and so you don't have to have the participant spouse uh, approval. Uh, this is something to keep in mind. Actually, it'll come up pretty quickly whenever that person goes to change their, the beneficiary on their account. They go to change the beneficiary on their account, and it's an ERISA. Uh, it's, it's controlled by this uh, ERISA legislation the beneficiary designation form is going to require um, the uh, spouse's, uh, spouse's signature uh, and, uh, and, and proof that the spouse is signing it. So in that case, obviously, um, it's going to become apparent right away that you've got to get the spouse's permission. It doesn't apply to IRA. It doesn't apply to certain kinds of 403Bs. Uh, um, it does apply to other kinds of 403Bs. And so you just have to keep that in mind. All right. Let's take a look at some different plans of how you might choose to leave a uh, retirement plan uh, to, the, um, to a charity um, when you have a, a situation with a surviving spouse. Okay? One way to do it is to simply say, okay, I'm going to change the designation. My spouse is going to be the primary beneficiary, uh, and my alternate beneficiary, in case the spouse isn't alive, is going to be the charity. 
So, so the concept here is that the retirement plan is going to go to my spouse uh, as long as she's alive. If she's not alive, it's going to go to the charity. But if it does go to her, then you know perhaps we've agreed uh, or we've talked about it, or I think she will want it to go to the same charity as well. You know, we're both graduates of Texas Tech University, and and we want. Uh, this to go to the Texas Tech Foundation. Um, I'll name her as the primary beneficiary and just leave the charity on as the alternate. Now, what, what are the advantages of this? Well, for the surviving spouse, these uh, have uh, all of the advantages. This is absolutely the, the best way to do it uh, from the perspective of the surviving spouse because he or she, and of course it's always a she, but you know, I'll be gender neutral here, but women do outlive men, and so uh, that's just the way it works. And plus men tend to uh, um, marry women who are younger than them, so that sort of exacerbates the same problem. Um, but uh, the, uh, the spouse can do whatever she wants to. Uh, for example, the spouse could, in, could roll it over into her own account. Spouse can keep it in the uh, decedent's account uh, if, that, uh, if that's preferable. There are some different rules on payout rates, and you'd have to match that up with, with what the spouse wants. But it's 100% flexibility. It belongs to the spouse. She can roll it over to her own account. She can change her mind. Um, she can decide, well, you know, I changed my mind. I don't want to leave it to that charity. I want to leave it to some other family member. I want to leave it to, to, to whomever. Or oh, I want to spend it all right now. You know, whatever. It's 100% flexibility for the surviving spouse. They can do whatever they want to with it. But if the surviving spouse leaves the plan in place and says, okay, well, I'm still going to leave that charity as the beneficiary, um, then there is no estate tax. Uh, there's no estate tax of the first transfer. Why? Well, because it's going to a spouse. As long as that spouse is a citizen, then we've got 100% uh, marital deduction. We don't pay any estate taxes. And, of course, there's no estate taxes at the second transfer because it's going on to the charity as the beneficiary. Uh, and so we have a nice, uh, nice benefit there. Uh, and, of course, the charity doesn't have to worry about the fact that it's IRD. Uh, there's income taxes to pay because charity is exempt. It doesn't pay the income taxes. There is an alternative plan uh, that, uh, that might be considered as well. And, and here's an example of that alternative plan. And that is we name as the beneficiary a charitable remainder trust with the payments going out to the spouse uh, for her life. Okay. Now, what are some advantages or disadvantages of this approach? Well, number one is the fact that the spouse cannot alter the payout. This is both the number one advantage and the number one disadvantage. It's a disadvantage because if we're worried about the spouse having enough money, you know, medical expenses, for example, something uh, emergency comes up, the charitable remainder trust is not set up to allow the trust to allow the surviving spouse to get into the principal and use that in case of emergency. There are no in case of emergency provisions in a CRT. So the disadvantage from the perspective of the spouse is that you're going to get what you're going to get. Either it's a fixed dollar amount if it's a crat or it's a fixed percentage amount if it's a crut. That's not going to change regardless of your circumstances. An advantage of this plan potentially, from the perspective of the uh, creator, is that the spouse cannot alter the payout. You know, maybe I just want the spouse to have just this amount of income, okay? 
I want her to have this many dollars a year, period. And no, I don't want her to be getting into principal beyond this amount. Um, I, want to, uh, I want the rest of it to go to charities. Uh, in the same way, uh, we can uh, work with a, a donor and he can set up the charitable beneficiary uh, can be set up as being irrevocable. In other words, um, we can set up that CRT so that at the death of the second spouse, that money is going to go to you know, the Texas Tech Athletic Association uh, or the, uh, uh, the, the Salvation Army or the Red Cross or, or whatever the favorite charity is of the, uh, of the first spouse to die. Now, this may be annoying for the surviving spouse because maybe the surviving spouse would have preferred a CRT that's, that allowed her to change the charitable beneficiary. But this is where we get into the advantages and disadvantages. Uh, it's the same characteristic, but from different perspectives, this may be an advantage or a disadvantage. So if we have someone who has a large uh, retirement account, they want to provide a set level of income for their surviving spouse, but they want everything else uh, at her death, they want it to go to Charity X, and they don't want that to be changed because you know they, they don't want the, the uh, spouse to, to, to burn through all of the money all at once. They don't want the spouse to change the beneficiary to the spouse's favorite charity. Um, they want it to go to you know, set up a, uh, a scholarship fund or to do some particular thing at a particular charity. It gives more control to the first spouse. Uh, the, the other advantages is that there are no estate taxes. There's no estate tax on the remainder interest because why? Well, of course, the remainder interest goes to a charity. So if the remainder interest goes to a charity, it's an unlimited charitable deduction, and uh, we have no estate taxes. There's actually no estate taxes uh, on the rest of what goes to the charitable remainder trust either because that part qualifies not as a charitable deduction but as a marital deduction. Now, you do have to be careful with this because uh, if you add a non-spouse beneficiary in, Say, okay, well, I want income to go to my spouse, and I also want you know, $100 a year to go to my, uh, my child. Uh, you can't, uh, if you do that, then the marital deduction goes away. Um, and th that gets back into some estate planning rules with Q-tip property and all that sort of thing. Um, and so you know, where essentially all of what's paid out has to go to the spouse. Okay. So that's bottom line. Without getting into all those rules, you've got to have it 100% being paid out to the spouse. If it's not 100% being paid out to the spouse, then the amount uh, that is the, uh, the amount other than the remainder interest that's going to the charity, that amount gets whacked by an estate tax. So don't want to mess that one up. Uh, don't want to mix and match. Uh, if you do want to do a charitable remainder trust with the children as beneficiaries, that's great. Just make a separate one. Don't put it all into the same, uh, into the same trust because uh, it'll mess up the marital deduction if you do that. Okay? So, so that's another way. Gives more control to the first spouse and ensures uh, that the charitable gift uh, will be made. Um, that, is, uh, that is a possibility. And then finally, we have a charitable remainder trust where uh, we are making payments to children uh, rather than to the spouse. Now here, of course, we're going to have some estate taxes because why? Well, because we're transferring value or transferring benefit to the children. 
Uh, and so what are those estate taxes going to be? Well, it's the normal thing we did when we looked at charitable remainder trusts. You take your value of the money that's going to the charitable remainder trust. Part of that value is the remainder interest. We can calculate that using the IRS tables. The rest of that value is the value that is anticipated to go to the children. And that part of it, the part that's going to the kids, that part of it we're going to have to pay state taxes on. Um, this, this is a, a feasible tax approach. It has, um, it's kind of a mixed bag in terms of its tax results. Uh, and the reason is that uh, if you remember back when we were talking about charitable remainder trusts, um, the charitable remainder trusts, when they pay out income, they use this uh, four-tier system where there are different kinds of income, and they pay out the most taxable income first. That is the sort of uh, um, uh, worst in, uh, first out concept. Uh, so what that means in this, this particular situation is that that means that the, um, uh, that the payments coming out are going to be ordinary income. And uh, um, so when the children receive the uh, payments from the retirement accounts, uh, the payments are going to count as ordinary income. An advantage is it's going to be spread out. It's not like you're going to have a, a massive ordinary income uh, amount in one year because you're taking a, 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 the uh, IRD all, all in one lump sum, but it, it is likely going to be ordinary income. There is another uh, tax disadvantage, um, and, and this kind of gets complicated, uh, and it's the idea that, that we, we can have essentially some tax-advantaged property that is, that is stuck in the trust. It has to do with that four-tier system where what gets paid out of the trust is considered to be the ordinary income until you've paid out all the ordinary income and then sort of up the tiers. Um, we have the potential to have tax -free, uh, a tax-free part of this, uh, of this transfer, and that tax-free part usually winds up never getting paid out. Uh, and so it is, it is a, uh, uh, a notable disadvantage, although it doesn't prevent these from being used. There is an inca income tax deduction for the estate taxes paid on retirement assets. Uh, and that is for, this only applies to IRD, so we're only looking at retirement plan uh, money here. Um, that income tax deduction basically gets lost. It gets trapped within the, in the uh, CRT. Uh, because it's considered to be this fourth tier of income that doesn't, doesn't get paid out until everything else is, is paid out. And without getting too much into, the, into detail of it, basically if you had the estate pay for the estate taxes uh, from some other sources, this money goes into the CRT. That means there's a, there's a chunk of it that's already essentially been paid for. It's already tax-free. And although that tax-free chunk is in the Charitable Remainder Trust, it doesn't uh, get paid out of it until the very until everything else has been paid out of it. And if you have a charitable remainder trust that not only starts out with a big section, big chunk of ordinary income, but it continues to earn income on its on its investments, um, if you have that scenario, then it is uh, usually the case that that tax free money never gets paid out to the children, and that's annoying because then you wind up having the the charity in, uh, inherits the. Uh, the uh, income tax-free uh, uh, money. Uh, so again, it, it just you know, what's the bottom line? The bottom line is that it is a 
uh, minor uh, disadvantage. Uh, there are some uh, scenarios where we can run the different, uh, uh, different examples and we can uh, see where it, it still can be uh, advantageous, but, but there is a little bit of a tax advantage that can be lost there. All right. So let's think about this. We have spent a lot of time talking about charitable planning techniques that oftentimes involve big dollars. And probably our number one favorite charitable planning technique is the charitable remainder trust. Charitable remainder trust, usually we're talking significant dollars, big transfers, voiding capital gains tax, all that sort of thing, and significant administration costs. For the client who isn't going to be giving enough money to justify setting up a charitable remainder trust, I want you to think about for a moment, if that client is not already maxing out their uh, retirement planning, you can actually think of an IRA with a charitable beneficiary as kind of like a, a mini charitable remainder trust. Uh, sort of like a simple, quick, easy version of a charitable remainder trust. Because think about it. If you can compare the traditional charitable remainder trust to setting up an IRA or other kind of uh, retirement account where the beneficiary, the death beneficiary, is a charity they are somewhat similar. In both cases, the remainder, whatever I put in to the charity, uh, goes to the charity at death. So that's similar. In both cases, the uh, donor can take income during the donor's life. Now, with the charitable remainder trust, that amount is fixed, either a fixed percentage or a fixed dollar amount, usually for life. Um, in the IRA with the charitable beneficiary, in some ways, we're less restricted. Uh, we could choose to not take it out at all. We could choose to take all of it out if we wanted to, right? So we've got this, uh, this unlimited choice in, in each year. And after age 59 and a half, of course, we can take it out without the additional penalties. So in some ways, the IRA, the IRA with the charitable beneficiary is more flexible than a charitable remainder trust. Charitable remainder trust, if you recall, we get a deduction for the value of the charitable remainder. So whatever percentage we calculate as being estimated to go to the, uh, to the uh, charitable remainderman, um, that amount is what we get the deduction for. But then you think about it. When you compare that to a retirement account, you actually get the deduction for the entire amount that's placed into the IRA or you know, the entire amount that you put into a, a, a pre-tax retirement uh, uh, defined uh, uh, contribution account. Uh, that's 100% deductible. Now obviously whatever amounts you take out later, you do pay taxes on those amounts you take out, uh, but the point is that certainly you couldn't argue that the IRA deduction or qualified plan deduction was any worse than the uh, charitable remainder trust. Uh, and, and so you actually get that, uh, get that stronger benefit. So, you know, you get more flexibility. You get more of a potential deduction. Um, uh, you know, flexibility as to how much of that you wind up uh, leaving to charity or not. And then when you talk about administration costs, of course, you know, administration costs for an IRA are essentially nothing as compared to a charitable remainder trust. They're all individually set up, individually structured, 
there's going to be significant administration costs. You're going to have annual uh, filings for the charitable remainder trust. So these are, uh, these are notable uh, costs. Now, of course, with an IRA, we're only doing cash transfers. Uh, you know, you're not going to take your highly appreciated property and transfer that into an IRA. Um, these are cash transfers only. And with the Charitable Remainder Trust, we can and often do transfer in highly appreciated property. Uh, and then ultimately, the reason why we're looking at these IRAs as a replacement or a substitute for the CRT is because we're dealing with small dollar amounts. Uh, you're not going to be allowed to put uh, $5 million uh, immediately at one time into your IRA uh, or your qualified plan. Uh, and on the other hand, with the Charitable Remainder Trust, if, you have, uh, if you're working with bigger dollars, these are unlimited in size, and so you can do whatever you would like with them. So the point here is that if you've got a client who's not already maxing out their retirement contributions, who is charitably inclined, uh, you don't have to move them all the way up to a charitable remainder trust. You can get many of those same concepts, those same advantages, by simply saying, well, let's use uh, a retirement plan where we have the charity named as the beneficiary. You can get many of the same tax advantages and, and the same basic uh, results in terms of when the income is received and when the gift is made. All right. I want to talk for a minute about uh, another uh, topic, which is not so much how do we make gifts out of the retirement plan, but now I want to talk more about how can we coordinate things. And, and this is a big deal right now, because right now the law permits Roth conversions. And it turns out that charitable planning can be an excellent partner from a tax perspective with Roth conversions. And the reason that these two are excellent partners is that uh, they can work together to match income with deductions, to balance those two things out. What am I talking about here? Let's take a look at a Roth conversion. So a Roth conversion, pretty straightforward. I've got a stack of money in a standard IRA. I take any money out of that IRA, I pay taxes on it. Okay? This is a standard IRA uh, in which withdrawals are taxable. I convert that IRA, the million dollars that's sitting there in that standard IRA, to a Roth IRA. When that million dollars goes into the Roth IRA, my withdrawals are tax-free. Now, that Roth conversion, which I can do at any amount, uh, that I have in my, in my IRA, when I make that conversion, I have to pay taxes on the million dollars that I've taken out of the IRA and put into the Roth. That is immediate taxable income. Uh, there are some provisions where you may be able to spread it out over two years, but it's, it's pretty much right now that you have to pay taxes on that. N now, why do people want to do these? Why, why would you want to pay taxes today instead of paying taxes later? Well, there's two reasons for it. One is that once I get this million dollars into the Roth IRA, it doesn't matter how big it grows, it's all tax-free. So if my million dollars in the Roth IRA grows to $2 million in the Roth IRA or $5 million in the Roth IRA, I can take out 
that entire amount and it's all tax-free. Okay? So I can take out that $5 million. Yes, I had to pay taxes on the million back here, but then it grew to $5 million, and when I took out that $5 million, no additional taxes were necessary. The other reason to make a conversion is if you expect that your tax rates in the future are going to be higher than your tax rates today. Now, why might that be particularly motivating right now? Well, because right now we can look at the tax laws that have already been passed and we can say, if nothing changes, tax rates are going to go up. We have these new taxes that have uh, come in as part of the, uh, uh, the uh, health care plan. Uh, those are going to be uh, starting up here in a couple of years, and so we expect those to add to things. Uh, if nothing is done uh, to, uh, to uh, um, change the uh, uh, current um, what we currently expect to happen, all of these tax uh, reductions are going to sunset, and so we would have higher taxes uh, in the future. So that's another reason. If you expect your taxes to be higher in the future than they are today, uh, then it makes sense to convert today. This could also uh, uh, be significant if, you know, let me give you an extreme example. Let's say that right now you're living in Texas. That part's not extreme. We expect that because that's where you are right now. And Texas has no income taxes. But let's say that you expect in the next five years that you're going to retire, going to reach retirement age, and you're going to move to, say, California, or worse yet, Oregon. You're going to move to a state that has high income taxes. Well, wouldn't it make sense to pay your income taxes on all this money today while you're in a state that has no income taxes, and then when you retire and move to a state with the high income taxes, guess what? That money's tax-free. And so you get a significant uh, uh, bump uh, right there uh, because of, uh, because of that, that tax difference. So, okay, so bottom line, Roth conversion, you can do as much as you want, and the two reasons why you'd want to do it, one, you, you want to pay taxes up front because uh, when you take it out later, it's tax-free regardless of how big it's grown. And two, you want to pay taxes today if you think the tax rates are going to be higher tomorrow. Okay, so that's all great, and that all works out really well. But there's an issue. That bottom box there. I, I've just generated a million dollars of taxable income. Now, this isn't money that's going into my pocket, see? I mean, I'm, I'm keeping it in the Roth IRA. I'm not taking it out and, paying, and, and burning that money up paying taxes. So what do I got to do? What I got to do is somehow now I've got to come up with the money to pay for the taxes on this million dollars of income. Or if I don't come up with the money, I have to come up with some way to have other deductions to offset some of this. So that generates the question. Where can I find these offsetting deductions? Where could, if I, if I don't want to just spend money out of my other assets to pay for these taxes, where can I just miraculously come up with offsetting deductions that are going to reduce the tax impact of this uh, Roth conversion? Well, you know, look, that's what we've been doing all semester long. We've been looking at all the different strategies that are charitable planning strategies, which will create dramatic 
um, uh, tax deductions. You can put money into a charitable remainder trust, right? And you immediately get a tax deduction for the present value of the remainder interest that at some future point will go to the charity. You could even do a grantor charitable lead trust. You know, you could do it like this. You could say, well, look, uh, I expect I'm going to make $100,000 in charitable gifts each year over the next 10 years. You can set up a charitable lead trust that pays $100,000 out to, uh, to a charity uh, or to your, um, you know, let's say you pay it out to your donor advice fund, uh, pays it out to, to a charity each year uh, for the next 10 years. And as long as you shift over enough assets that back up that promise to pay $100,000 a year for the next uh, 10 years, you get to deduct right now today the present value of all 10 years worth of gifting. And then, of course, being a charitable lead trust, uh, whatever amount of that asset you shifted over that wasn't paid out to the charity, you get it all back, you know, all the rest of it back. So you can essentially take the deduction today for your next 10 years worth of giving uh, if you have an asset that you can put in there that will, uh, that, that will cover that pledge, so to speak. Uh, you could set it, take out a charitable gift annuity. That's certainly going to create a significant uh, tax deduction right now today. Um, you could uh, put money into a donor-advised fund. You know, if, if, uh, uh, if you're going to be making $100,000 gifts for the next 10 years, and if you've got the uh, million dollars, shift it into the donor-advised fund today, and then you can make those gifts out over the next 10 years. You can shift it into a private foundation, uh, and uh, you still can control it. Uh, you, with a private foundation, you are going to have to pay out a minimum of 5% a year, uh, but um, you, uh, uh, you can create a tax deduction that way. Or, and I particularly like this one because you know, I think it applies to a lot of people uh, who maybe don't have liquid assets uh, to uh, shift around and to, uh, and to pay the taxes. You can give a remainder interest in your residence or, or in farmland. So let's say you've got somebody who is a, uh, who's a farmer and um, they're charitably inclined and they say, yeah, I'd really like to take advantage of this Roth thing but this Roth conversion, but there's no way I'm, I don't have that much cash to just uh, pay for the taxes that that Roth conversion is gonna generate. Love to do it, but you know, look, all, all, my, all my property, uh, all my value is in land. Well, if they're charitably inclined, if they had intended to leave some of that farm uh, or some part of it or, or, or all of it to a charitable organization, you can take advantage of that today they can sign the remainder deed, they can give the remainder interest in the farmland, and they can get the deduction right now today for that remainder interest that will go to the, the charity at, at their death. Uh, so all these things we've been looking at through the semester are ways, charitable planning methods, that can create major uh, charitable deductions in year one right now. Uh, you know, and certainly when you're looking at some of the interest rates that we've got, when we looked at the remainder interest uh, for farmland, we were calculating it with a 2% uh, rate from the IRS. That has now actually dropped to 1.8% this month, uh, lowest ever in history, uh, which means, you know, somebody age 55 is, uh, and, and I haven't redone the calculations, but, you know, they're, they're going to be getting a massive amount of the current value of that farmland as an immediate charitable deduction. 
Now, normally when we're doing charitable planning, we do those kinds of things and we're freaking out because we've got this massive deduction in year one and we, we don't have enough income to, to offset it. Um, but in this case, we've now got this massive income spike because of the Roth conversion and these same techniques are perfect because we can match up our uh, income with our deductions. Well, as you probably know, as we've talked about a lot, charitable deductions may be limited. Uh, they're limited depending upon who we're giving it to and what we're giving it. Giving, uh, They're limited to 20%, 30%, or 50% of income. Uh, and of course, we get the five-year carryover, so we can eventually use them. If we have engaged in either a massive amount of giving relative to our income, or we've engaged in one of these techniques we just looked at a second ago that creates this massive upfront charitable deduction, we have the flip side of the problem. The flip side of the problem is I've got this massive charitable deduction, but I don't have enough income to offset it. So I've got to wait, and if I wait too long, if I can't use it within five years, then the deduction goes away. What can we do about that? If I have unused deductions, I'm giving too much or I'm using these charitable planning techniques that creates all these upfront deductions for later transfers that will happen to the charity. How can I pull future income into the current year, right? I, I, want, I want more income this year. I would like to pay taxes on income I'm going to have later so that I can use these charitable uh, deductions to offset that. Right? Well, of course, how we do that is with a Roth conversion. So we can balance it both ways. If we've got too much deduction, we need something to offset that. We can do a Roth conversion, uh, and that generates income. If we do a Roth conversion and it creates too much income, we need some deductions to so offset that. We can do some of these charitable planning techniques. Roth conversion creates income, charitable planning techniques create the deduction. And so you can work with these two and balance them out, income versus the deduction. Now, right now the Roth conversion is not, not slated to be permanently open, uh, but it certainly will be open uh, at this point for, uh, uh, for the next tax year. And so uh, this is something that to the extent that these are open, these are uh, two things that, that go great together. All right, so that's donating retirement assets, how you can take money out while you're alive, which is okay, how you can give money to charity at your death, which is fantastic, and how you can balance out your income and your deductions combining the techniques of using uh, Roth IRA conversions with some of the uh, advanced charitable planning techniques we've looked at uh, in the semester and then finally the idea of how you can actually use an IRA or a qualified plan to be sort of a, a poor man's charitable remainder trust uh, if you have a client with those goals but without the asset size to, to justify a charitable remainder trust. So that's the end. Thanks.